Welcome to the Web3 Business Podcast, helping you navigate the future of business. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Web3 Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'm going to be joined by John Hillis, and we're going to explore how to govern a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. Now, here's what's fascinating about today's interview. We're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about organization and government stuff. And I think you're going to find it really fascinating because there's a little bit of history, a lot of structure, and a lot of rethinking of how organizations need to be organized if they're truly decentralized. I think you're going to find it absolutely fascinating. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. If you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. AI has been a massive disruptive force over the past year. That's why we're excited to announce our brand new show. Introducing AI Explored. It's a weekly show hosted by me, Michael Stelzner. If you want to understand how to put AI to work, this is the show for you. Each week, we'll dive deep into using AI to your advantage. We're talking the practical, tactical stuff that I know you're probably craving. Search for AI Explored on your favorite podcast app, and happy listening. Let's transition over to this week's interview with John Hillis. Helping you to simplify your Web3 journey, here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by John Hillis. If you don't know who John is, he's the founder of Cavin a DAO and network of neighborhoods designed to help remote workers and online creators reduce their costs and increase their quality of life. He's also an angel investor at Capital.Community and advisor of Seed Club Ventures. John, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Today, John and I are going to explore the ins and outs of governing a decentralized autonomous organization. And I know that sounds kind of crazy and technical, but we're going to explain it all in just a bit. But before we go there, John, I would love to hear your story. How the heck did you get into Web3? Start wherever you want to start. Yeah, thanks so much. I'll start early because I feel very fortunate to have a lot of threads of my life that have come together into the work that I get to do now. I'll actually just start the, the week I was born, which was the same week that the World Wide Web started, first week of August 91. And I like to think that the World Wide Web and I have grown up together. I spent my middle school years hanging out in early online communities and designing virtual houses for people in 3D architecture software. That was kind of the first job I, I ever thought I wanted to have. And at the time, I was also spending a lot of time in the Boy Scouts. When I was 16, I went on this 250-mile backpacking trip through the Sangre de Criso Mountains of New Mexico and fell in love with the wilderness and you know, went off to college, discovered the joy of living in a dense residential community at a small liberal arts college and majored in environmental studies and political science. Um, for my thesis, I, I ran computer simulations and experiments to try to find strategies for small groups to coordinate to solve collective action problems, which I didn't realize at the time, but was essentially research on, on DAOs <laughs> before uh, there was a, a word for that. And then late in college, my roommate, uh, my, one of my college roommates showed me Silk Road, which was my introduction to Bitcoin. Yeah, explain what that is to people that don't know what that is. Sure, yeah. So Silk Road was probably, I guess, the first app for Bitcoin. It was mostly a marketplace for people to buy and sell drugs on the internet. And a lot of folks who 
were around that time. That that was kind of the only way to, to actually use Bitcoin. And so it was a lot of folks' introduction to it. So anyway, my, my college roommate told me about it and I, I picked up a little bit of Bitcoin at the time, but there just wasn't that much to do with it. So after we graduated, that roommate and I co-founded a startup that was essentially an early you know, token-gated community, though we weren't using that language at the time. And frankly, nobody in 2014 was very interested in paying to be a part of an online community. Um, and so we, we shut it down and, you know, I decided I needed to get some real startup experience. So I made this giant spreadsheet of companies that I thought were going to take off and, you know, hand delivered resumes to them in San Francisco and ultimately got hired for a very entry level job at Instacart and grinded for, for years and, you know, ultimately uh, spent most of my time there in product and ended up as a director of, of product uh, focused on Instacart shoppers and, and the marketplace. And, you know, I was scheduled to leave at the beginning of the pandemic. I was ready to ride off into the sunset. And then of course the, you know, my wife and I were going to go travel the world and the pandemic happened. And instead of doing that, I, I stayed on to help, you know, Instacart scale through the early stages of the pandemic. Uh, we brought on more workers than any other company in the U.S. at the time. But the, the gig economy, you know, ultimately didn't live up to my aspirations for it. And, you know, it, it was resulting in commodified labor. And it was pretty clear that, you know, the gig economy was changing the nature of the firm. And as a result, I became really interested in the creator economy, where I thought there were opportunities for similar decreases in transaction costs to result in a different outcome where there was non-commodified labor. And I'd fallen in love with Henry David Thoreau's Walden in college and always had this sort of aspirational dream going back to my childhood architecture days of wanting to build a cabin in the woods and bring together friends from the internet. So I, I left Instacart to go do that and you know with the plan to just invite cool internet people out, write science fiction about what this sort of future could look like and ultimately built a four bedroom shipping container out in the Texas Hill Country, brought a group of um, internet friends out. We called ourselves the creator co-op. Um, and we were all a bunch of independent online creators. And sitting around the campfire late one night, we dreamed up this creator residency program, you know, that ultimately became the DAO that is now Cabin. Very cool. So John, very fascinating background that you have. I'm super, super intrigued by it. You decided to somehow create a DAO. Why did you decide to go that route? I mean, like, what was the story there? Because you could have just done this in a traditional business way, right? Sure. So, yeah, like I mentioned, you know, we had this group of online creators who had come out to this cabin that we just built and we wanted to create a residency program. And, you know, a lot of us were interested in Web3, but frankly, pretty skeptical of, you know, the actual use cases for it. So we thought through the use cases and what we realized was that, you know, helping groups of people collectively govern things online was one of the big unlocks and opportunities that DAOs offered. And so we designed this residency program where we wanted to create the time and space for more independent online creators to come out to the cabins. And so we did this crowdfund where we got people to donate money to support this residency program. And in exchange for donating money, they got a token and that token gave them governance rights over helping pick who got to come out for those residencies. And so it was this very simple, clear use case for how you know we could use these new tokenized primitives to allow people that didn't know each other online to collectively make this decision about this residency program. And that was the origin of the DAO. 
When, and when was that exactly? What, were, what was the time frame on that? That would have been May of 2021. So a little over about 18 months ago. So bring us up to the presence because obviously you're involved with some other things. Like you mentioned, when I introduced you, Capital.Community and Seed Club Ventures. So it sounds like you, you've gone beyond just this project that you're starting with Cabin. Tell us a little bit about some of these other things that you're involved with that, are, that seem to be Web3 focused as well. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as I was leaving Instacart, I really wanted to take the time to explore what to do next. And um, like I mentioned, I was really interested in the creator economy and particularly had a thesis around the way that declining transaction costs were changing the nature of the firm. And it, it became evident to me that, you know, the opportunity for people to create their own brands online and, you know, build communities around them was going to be a big deal. And so I started doing some angel investing just to learn more about that space. And as I got further into the journey with Cabin, you know, more opportunities opened up there and I formed deeper theses around communities and what internet native communities would look like and started angel investing in a wider range of DAOs, internet native communities, tools to help those communities grow. And that ultimately led to an opportunity to join as an advisor at Seed Club Ventures as well. Yeah, we had Jess Loss on the show. Did you also go through one of his, I forget what they call him, but were you one of the, what do they call that when they put people through? Yeah, an accelerator cohort. Yeah, so Kevin did join the Seed Club Accelerator in cohort three, which was kind of earlier in, in Seed Club's journey and the, the first big cohort that they were putting through the accelerator. And yeah, had a phenomenal experience doing that and meeting uh, some of the other teams. One of the other groups that went through with us in that cohort was Kraus House, which is the DAO focused on buying an NBA team. And we, we became close friends with them and several of the other DAOs in that cohort. And it continues to be a really strong community that we're a part of. First of all, thank you for all that backstory. I think that's really important for people to understand where you're coming from. So there's a lot of people right now that might be listening that are possibly considering organizing their future entity or enterprise or startup as a DAO. And why should people consider what's the upside to possibly having a DAO over a traditional business? What do you want to tell to those people based on what you've experienced so far? Yeah, but mostly what I tell people is you probably don't want to start a DAO. <laughs> so in, in most cases, you know, traditional corporate structures are are pretty well designed, you know, for the goals that they're trying to accomplish, which is to basically create a, a vehicle for profit maximization and redistribution to shareholders. So like if, if that's the primary thing you're trying to accomplish, often, you know, traditional corporate structures are, are designed for that. The opportunity with DAOs is to create internet native communities. And so if what you're doing doesn't necessarily fit within the structure of you know, what makes sense for a corporation. And instead, what you're trying to do is empower a community or a network of people to have ownership in the decision-making of the organization, then a DAO is probably a good fit. Interesting. So one of the things that we're going to, well, the main thing we're going to tackle today is governance, right? Because uh, we probably should define exactly what governance is for everybody because that's not a term most of us use when we think about like a corporation, but maybe what is governance and why is it so important when it comes to DAOs? 
Sure. So yeah, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. As, as I mentioned, um, I was a political science nerd in, in college and was particularly interested in this question of, you know, small groups overcoming collective action problems, because what, what's happening in, you know, American society and frankly across the world right now, particularly in Western civilization, is that we're kind of stuck in this rut where we have political polarization that's become really entrenched. This is, of course, a story everybody's very familiar with. And if you trace back the origins of that, you know, where you land is basically in political philosophy 101, in which, you know, you have the right and the left. And those terms actually date back to just after the French Revolution, the nobles sat on the right side of parliament, the common delegates sat on the left side. And that has come to define our political spectrum. Hobbes is sort of the granddaddy of the political right, Rousseau, granddaddy of the political left. And we, we've gotten very stuck in, in the ruts of their thinking, which was based around this idea that, you know, ultimately we were trying to figure out how to evolve beyond a system of kings and sovereign lords. And they were presenting, you know, perspectives on how to do that. But those perspectives were very deeply rooted in this idea that what needed to be governed were these very large groups of people. And that, that's, you know, not only the case in the context of their political writing, but also the case in the founding of the U United States, which had two and a half million people spread across a quarter million miles of land. And they had to sort of live within those political realities when they were trying to figure out what kinds of government systems were on the table. And you know, that, that's resulted in a lot of great stuff over the past couple hundred years, but it's worth considering some alternative paths. And I think some of the most interesting alternative paths available are thinking about what it looks like to apply governance, not at the scale of nation states, but at the scale of much smaller groups of people. And that's where one of the big opportunities with DAOs is. That was fascinating. Thank you for that. When we think about governance in the case of a DAO, how does that work? Like, why is that important? You know, because obviously we understand when we're dealing with millions or hundreds of millions of people, it makes sense. You got to have governance, right? But when you're dealing with dozens or hundreds of individuals, you know, this is where a lot of entrepreneurs or business people might get a little confused, right? Because, you know, is governance code word for checks and balances inside of the entity? I mean, what does it mean when we're talking about a DAO? Governance really just means putting decision making in the hands of a community of people. Let's look at the other path. So we've just sort of talked through the evolution of governance in the context of Western civilization. If you step outside of that for a second, and I'd, I'd point to, uh, for instance, David Graeber and David Wenrose, The Dawn of Everything as a pretty extensive history of what I'm about to describe. There's actually a really rich political history in non-Western societies, you know, that is based on a wide range of much smaller groups and, you know, a wide range of various forms of egalitarian, hierarchical, and other compound structures of governance within the context of tribes or clans or these like smaller units of, of human organization. And one of my political heroes is a woman named Eleanor Ostrom, who was you know one of the clearest thinkers of this from the context of the field of political science. And she has written a lot about the idea of polycentric governance of complex economic systems. And the, the idea here is basically that 
you know, we've had such blinders on in the context of these nation state scale governance structures. That's what nearly all political science as a field is focused on, that we haven't really understood the ways that groups of five or 50 or 500 or 5,000 people organize themselves at nearly the depth that, that we should. And that requires an experimental approach. And what DAOs offer is the ability to try out radically different governance structures across all of those different scales and try to get a better understanding of what it looks like to involve communities of people more directly in making the decisions that impact them. So what I think I hear you saying is that governance when it comes to DAOs, because DAOs are often organizations of people, sometimes anonymous, sometimes they don't know each other, right? And and that's the same with government in America, right? You've got all these people that are just numbers, right? And they need to organize. And if they can get organized in new and creative ways, then they can accomplish different things. So in light of everything we've been talking about, that governance for DAOs allows us the opportunity to try things that maybe have never been done before. If someone is going to be brave enough to start a DAO, <laughs> you know, what are some of the things they need to be thinking about when they're designing governance for their DAOs? Let's like break down some of those things. Most DAO operators and leaders suffer from what Nathan Schneider has referred to as innovation amnesia which you know is this idea that when you have a new technology people tend to forget everything that we've learned as civilization before and and want to start with a clean slate which is you know a, a two-sided coin because on one hand that means you can explore and be open to new ideas and new ways of doing things on the other hand it means you tend to forget all of the lessons of human civilization and history. And so I think the the best thing that a DAO operator can do is look to some of those existing examples. So we can talk about a few of those. You know, we, we need to basically answer the question, in what ways can decentralized organizations outcompete more centralized ones? Because decentralization, centralization, it's not only a spectrum, but it's a multidimensional problem where you know, there are different forms of centralization and decentralization that can take the shape of governance, they can take the shape of roles and responsibilities and, you know, power structures within an organization. And some of those are really healthy ways of doing things, and some of them don't result in successful organizations. So I started out by looking at a bunch of different successful existing pre-DAO decentralized organizations. So this includes things like Valve, which is a gaming company behind the Steam gaming platform, which operates in a very decentralized way. The U.S. Marine Corps, people often think of the military as being this very centralized structure. In fact, uh, partially in response to terrorism and you know, the need to develop counterinsurgency strategies, the U.S. Marine Corps in particular has adopted some very decentralized approaches. Intentional co-living communities have been around for decades and have figured out a lot of good lessons here. And even an organization like Amazon, which is still you know, a traditional corporate structure, has adopted some of the real benefits of operating in a more decentralized way. So you know, looking at these different organizations, there's a lot to learn. And you know, essentially, a couple of those areas that we could talk about, the principles that these organizations tend to have in common, they focus first and foremost on recruiting people who are really great at what they do, have the skills, have the ambition, have the passion, and have the 
autonomy, people who can operate independently. So recruiting, recruiting the best people is a necessary step. Let's dig in a little deep on the right people, right? So if we put this in the context of a DAO, who are the right people? What ought we be looking for? You know what I mean? And like, how should we discern whether someone has the stuff, if you will, to be able to be part of governing a DAO? The interesting thing about, you know, internet native communities relative to traditional organizations is that they have much more permeable boundaries. So in a traditional company, you're kind of either an employee or not an employee or a customer or not a customer. In online communities, there are much uh, looser and more permeable boundaries between roles and between you know, not being involved and being involved in, in a community. And so what, something DAOs often get wrong is they think that in order to be a DAO, they need to be totally permeable and open and anyone can just show up and do anything, you know, and, and everything's in public all the time. And that often leads to chaos. <laughs> that leads to, you know, people without context trying to jump into things that they aren't necessarily the right fit for. And so one way that you can solve this is by thinking of a kind of iron triangle between permeability, autonomy, and quality. In order for someone's contributions to be effective within a DAO, you need to have the ability for people to come into an organization in a permeable way, but you need to balance that with the ability to locate and promote quality contributions and the ability to allow people to have autonomy over the type of work that they're going to do. And so the, the key to doing that, you know, for any organization and, and especially for decentralized organizations is to find high powered, self-directed decision makers who can operate within that ambiguous environment. So help us understand how you did this with your DAO or how some of the other entities that you maybe are familiar with or are, that are DAOs that you're advising or that are part of the seed club are doing this. Because in my mind, this permeability thing, I think is a real challenge, right? Because obviously I run a business, I've got X number of employees that work for me. And yes, sometimes some leave, I've got contractors who are more permeable. So the idea of a contractor makes a little more sense, right? Like they're not just serving me, they're serving others as well. I think when I think of people that are part of a DAO, they might be part of many different DAOs, or they might have a job and be part of a DAO, or they might be a contractor and part of a DAO, right? So that permeability thing, you know, is interesting. And I'm trying to wrap my head around, like, how does that, does that mean you're looking for people that are part of the community that have the right skills? Or what does this mean exactly? Help me understand this a little bit. I think an important distinction to make that sometimes trips people up is that effective DAOs are not monolithic entities. They operate in a sort of loose network or constellation of smaller organizations with clear purposes that contribute to the whole. So what that means is that you need to have these little pockets or pods of people that are operating on a specific problem area. And you want to have really strong gating mechanisms for those pods. You want to have those pods have a lot of autonomy over who they let in and in what roles they let people in. But you also want to have this broader constellation or network in which there are lots of ways for you know anyone to sort of find their home within the organization and get a sense of where they might fit into the broader sense-making network. And so it's, I think, a balance between having 
open arms at sort of the broad community level, and then being very particular about who you let in to specific contexts within the organization that are determined in an autonomous way by the group of people who are closest to that problem at the edge of the network. So let's make this practical. Give me some examples of how you're doing this with Cabin. So two examples of how we're doing this with Cabin. The first one is our neighborhoods. So ultimately Cabin as a DAO is a network of neighborhoods and these neighborhoods are physical locations. So for instance, I live at neighborhood zero, which is Cabin's neighborhood outside of Austin, Texas. We're on 28 acres of the Texas Hill Country and you know we're building out physical infrastructure and have a co-living community that lives out there. We have two other neighborhoods in California and each of these neighborhoods is an independently owned and operated entity. You know, while we are stitching together these neighborhoods into a network where we can build shared culture, economy and governance structure, ultimately, you know, most of the decision-making authority rests at the level of the individual neighborhood. And that's a good example of the type of local autonomy and permeability that you want in the context of a DAO. Another example of this is the way that we work as an organization. So there's no central single entity that is ultimately responsible for being a service provider to the network and, and operating the network itself. The way this works is we have what we call fellowships, which are essentially these, again, small pods of people. You know, Amazon called these two pizza teams uh, historically. At Cabin, you know, we, we prefer to call them one sauna teams um, after uh, we built a, a sauna at Neighborhood Zero and realized that was about the right size of a team. But these small pods are, you know, the effective unit of most executing action within the organization. And the reason why this is so important is it comes back to coordination costs. So I talked a little bit earlier about this idea of declining transaction costs, changing the nature of the firm. And this was a big realization I had working in the context of the gig economy at Instacart and you know, ultimately what led me down the path towards the creator economy and, and ultimately DAOs was the realization that transaction costs the you know, ability for people to literally sign contracts or work with other entities has gotten way easier in, in the context of the internet, way lower friction. And what that means is that it's much easier to form groups. If you look at the size of groups that naturally form or that effectively form, you know, if you look at the number of connections between people in those groups, those connections rise geometrically. And so if you have three people, there's just three connections between the people. Okay. If you have five people, there's 10 connections. If you have seven people, there's 21 connections. And so the connections increase really fast. And so it caps out at pretty small numbers of people that can effectively maintain all of the connections and relationships within a group. And that's the optimal size for local decision-making. Okay, I want to talk about self-organization, which is something we talked about, and mission-driven leaders and stuff. But the the one thing that comes to mind is you have a unique opportunity with your DAO because you're dealing with people in a physical location, right? Where a lot of other DAOs are not in a physical location. So maybe they have a bunch of people that are part of the DAO because they own a token or an NFT, right? And I would imagine it's even more complicated because they could be very passive participants 
where in your case, you can literally walk over to the cabin next door and knock on the door, right? So do you have any wisdom to to these uh, online only focused DAOs as far as how to do something like this? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, part of the initial premise of cabin was, you know, the idea that it makes a lot of sense to find your people online and then get together in person. And, you know, like I mentioned, I've been involved with online communities since since a young age. And there's something really powerful and magical about locating other like-minded individuals on the internet because it's such a big pool to draw from. This is actually something that I think, you know, online dating has really figured out, right? There's no more self-motivated group of people to find other people to spend time with than, than people who are dating. And if you look at the chart of online dating over time, it, you know, just like is this massive spike in, in the past decade of people meeting online and, and a decline in basically every other form. But they're meeting online and then pretty quickly getting together in person. And there's just nothing that beats the high bandwidth of reality. And so, you know, I think that we can't always be together. Obviously, it's much lower friction and lower costs to get together virtually. And that works a lot of the time. But I would be skeptical of any organization that doesn't have some in-person touchpoint or component over time, because that's how really deep relationships get formed and deep connections get made. So we're talking about governing at DAO. And obviously, there's going to be members of the DAO, in your case, members of your cabin community. I'm assuming not every single person is going to be in a position where they're going to be involved in the governance. They might want to, but they might not choose to. Is that true? So are we really trying to to identify those individuals within the entity, if you will, that are going to rise up? Is that really what we're talking about and take on obligation and responsibility? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there is a a meme within the DAO world, or at least there certainly was over the past year or two, that, you know, decentralization meant broad, consistent governance participation. And, you know, I think we've seen time and time again in history that that's not really how governance tends to work effectively. And, you know, there's very low governance participation in most forms of democracy, even more so in the context of things like traditional corporate democracy, shareholder governance. And there's a reason for that. People, you know, can't constantly be paying attention to all of the organizations that they're a part of and connected to and, you know, making complicated decisions about how to govern those things. You know, I spent a decade living in California and remember the just insanity of the California ballot propositions, you know, in which I I would literally receive like a hundred page booklet, you know, with all the reading material for all the things I was supposed to vote on. And I would do that because I care about this stuff, but it's not a reasonable expectation for, you know, most people to do that kind of thing for lots of organizations. And so governance needs to find ways to work within the context of smaller groups and within the context of the assumption that not everybody can participate all the time. So how do we decide who should be in that kind of a role? Is there certain kinds of characteristics and individuals we should be seeking out? The most important thing I think here is information accessibility. So you want to make sure that 
everybody can understand what's going on within an organization so that the people you know with the best ideas and the ability to execute on those ideas can rise to the roles in which they're able to do those things you know one thing that i do think DAOs have been very good at and is an important part of what DAOs do is have much more transparent and accessible information than other forms of organizations traditionally do. So at Cabin, that means, first of all, obviously, all of the actual information about our token and our governance is all on-chain and openly accessible to anyone. You know, all the code we've written is open source in repos online. All of our, you know, core documentation is accessible to anybody. Our online community, you know, is accessible to anybody who goes through our onboarding process. And so creating this level of information accessibility is one thing that decentralized organizations have typically not been very good at. So by really focusing on on doing that, we at least create the opportunity then for you know people to understand what's going on and have the the chance to jump in and you know raise their hand and, and rise to the occasion. Let's talk about self-organizing <laughs> because this is right, maybe where the word autonomous comes in, in in DAOs, right? Like tell me more about what is expected and how do people organize and all that kind of stuff. Talk about that a little bit. There are some great lessons here from you know a lot of types of organizations. One of the best examples here comes from the US Marine Corps like I was mentioning, and particularly in their counterinsurgency doctrine in which they were responding to terrorist cells, which you know, are essentially decentralized organizations. And you know they, they learned from that. Jim Mattis, who was the Secretary of Defense and helped define that doctrine, has an excellent memoir, Call Sign Chaos, in which he talks about the need to have clearly defined missions, small groups executing at the edges, information accessibility, and minimum viable self-governance. There's another great analogy here that people in the DAO world like to slime molds or other sort of natural, you know, evolutionary structures that have solved this kind of problem. And the, the way that these things work, you know, if you look at a slime mold, you can watch it grow towards available food sources, or you can think about like an oak tree expanding its branches out towards sunlight. And these self-organizing systems, the first thing that they need is a goal to grow towards. And so to take that analogy and apply it to human organizations, what you really need here is clearly defined missions. Everyone needs to have a common understanding of the mission and the intent of the mission, to use Jim Mattis's language. And within a DAO, you know, where we've seen DAOs really succeed is when they have those sort of clear missions. So I mentioned Kraushaus earlier. Kraushaus is trying to buy an NBA team as an internet native community. That's very clear. They have an extremely clear mission and everybody can be aligned towards that goal. At Cabin, we're building a network city and everybody you know, may have slightly different versions of what they, they think that means, but everybody's rowing in the same direction and we can take a bunch of different bets, diverge and try different things that might help us get towards that goal. And then converge towards the solutions that seem to be best helping us achieve it. Let's take your entity cabin as an example. So like if it's self-organizing and the mission you said was to grow a network city, is that what you said? 
Yep. So does that mean a couple of people could just come together and decide they're going to launch a brand new city and, and they just go for it? Or what does that mean? Like help us understand that in a practical sense. Yeah. In the context of cabin, you know, I talked about these, these sort of small autonomous pods that we have, right. The, the neighborhoods, the fellowships, which are the kind of service providers to the network itself. Anybody can start one of these things, right? Anybody can put up a proposal to the DAO and say, you know, here's a, a problem that needs to be solved. I'm going to form this fellowship and go through the DAO's governance process and apply for funding to basically try to solve that problem. Here are the things I'm going to try to accomplish. So that's an example of what it might look like for a fellowship to form. Real quick, is there another pod that approves this? The DAO itself. Everyone votes on it who's part of the DAO. Is that the idea? Yeah. So the way our current governance structure works is that, yeah, basically anybody who holds a thousand cabin can create a proposal and put it up for a vote. And then everybody in the DAO votes on it. We use a quadratic token weighted multi-choice voting system, uh, <laughs> if you want to get really nerdy about it, that we use to you know, decide as a collective group if the proposal passes, and then we can allocate resources. I'm not suggesting that that's, by the way, the like ultimate way these things should work. I think a really important principle here for governance is that you don't want to lock in one way of doing things too early. There's a real interest, I think, in people like writing a constitution. And you have to remember that the constitution in the case of the United States actually came a little bit later after the Articles of Confederation didn't work. And you know, if you get too locked into a governance system too early, you can kind of get trapped in it. Maintaining an openness to flexibility of meta-governance, of developing the governance system itself is important here. And so I wouldn't say that our system is, is you know, the best one in the world or even the best for our context or even what we'll be doing forever. There are other interesting models of governance here. I think NounsDAO has an interesting model of governance. I think JokeDAO has an interesting model of governance. There's various other forms of delegation and, you know, forms of uh, voting that can be effective in different contexts. But yeah, that's the system that we use right now. Very fascinating. So basically what I hear you saying is if somebody decides that they want to present an idea, they go ahead and write up a proposal and presumably uh, present it for approval by the DAO. If the DAO approves it, then there's probably a recruitment process to create the pod. Is that the idea? Are the people that are going to help support this? Yeah. So a proposal would typically include, you know, both an understanding of the specific goals that they want to accomplish, which we often represent as OKRs, objectives and key results, and then, you know, a budget that they want in order to accomplish that. And that budget, you know, presumes that they'll need to bring people on to support achieving that goal. And, you know, the job of the DAO is to assess, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is Are we going to get, you know, good ROI for investing this money in this outcome? Are there any good reading resources or others that, because this is such a fascinating concept that we're talking about right now and it's complex right and then like you have this background in political science and you know you, you help demystify all this stuff but you know there's other examples of DAOs that we could model but has anybody gone out and said here's some fascinating models have there been any books written on this stuff yet or any good resources or blogs or substacks or anything that you would recommend people start reading if they really want to learn a lot more about this yeah we're we're super early here and so i don't think anybody has written the sort of definitive guide to DAO governance. And I think if somebody tried to write that, anybody who actually is a DAO operator would probably be pretty skeptical about it because- Or even best practices. Sure. 
there are certainly, you know, organizations and examples to look at and think about here. I, I can name a couple of them. I think that David Ehrlichman's book, Impact Networks, is a really good read on how these sort of network structures form. I think that Spencer Graham's anti-capture framework is a really good way of understanding why this technology actually results in some pretty novel and interesting governance structures. I think that Eleanor Ostrom's work on polycentric governance is, you know, the like best academic work that's been done on this stuff. And, you know, frankly, I think the the only real way to deeply understand these things is to just dive in and, and participate in the context of organizations that are trying to figure all this out right now. So, John, if you uh, could put your futurist cap on for a second and look into the future a couple of years from now, where do you see all of this going when it comes to the things that we've been talking about today? What's your what's your vision or hope of where all this is going to go? I think what's really at the core of this is the rise of digital communities that are responsible for themselves. You know, if you look at communities you know, in the context of digital environments, those digital environments have historically been owned and operated by a corporate entity that's sort of separate from the community. And what we're seeing here is the rise of internet native communities that are self-custodying their own assets that are, you know, developing their own systems and that are starting to do interesting things in the real world with those structures and with those communities. And I think we're at the very beginning of a big transition. I think we're going to look back in a decade and it, this is going to be pretty obvious that, oh, you know, it doesn't actually make sense for some like corporate structure with a single person in charge to be making decisions on behalf of these big global communities when we now have the tools, resources, infrastructure for those communities to be making decisions on behalf of themselves. John Hillis, this has been really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing all that. If people want to discover more about you, where do you want to send them? Do you have a website? And also, do you have a preferred social platform if they want to connect with you online? Sure. Yeah, you can find me at johnhillis.com. And I spend probably a little too much time on Twitter. My DMs are open at Jonathan Hillis. And if you're interested in Cabin, you can find out more about us at cabin.city or at Creator Cabins on social. John, thank you so much for coming on the show and really opening at least my eyes and hopefully many other people's eyes to the really the fascinating ways we can organize and structure to accomplish things that are beyond our wildest dreams. I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash C51. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us and let your friends know about this show, would you? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Web3 Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. The Web3 Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Web3 Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research.
If you're like so many fellow marketers and creators and entrepreneurs, you're probably wondering, how do I put AI to work? Well, be sure to listen to the AI Explored podcast, a new show from Social Media Examiner, hosted by yours truly, Michael Stelzner. Again, check out the AI Explored podcast.